Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here to worship and also to uh, study with me in the Word of God. We're going to be in the book of James, and our study of the book of James brought us this morning to a hard topic, one we uh, don't really like to talk about or think about very much, but one which is so very important, and that is the topic of temptation. We're going to be in James uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and we'll cover a portion of that this week and then continue on next week. As you're turning there, I want you to think about the world in which we live and the understanding of sin that is propagated in society. One of the most common and destructive errors of our day in modern society and the popular worldview is the belief that suffering exempts you from responsibility for sin. It is the belief that experiencing suffering exempts you from responsibility for sin. Put it another way, many people in our day think that those who experience trials are not to blame for succumbing to temptations. For example, if you go out into the secular world, the academic world, for example, you will continually hear the premise that poverty is the cause of crime. Now, I lived for many years amongst people who were very poor. And frankly, this premise is insulting to the poor. It implies that they are criminals in the making. Their poverty will lead to moral deficiency. It's not just a financial scarcity, but a moral scarcity is presupposed in them. That's just simply not true. The vast majority of poor people are like James described them in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. I think that's what James would be saying to those who perpetuate that premise that poverty leads to criminality. It's insulting to the poor, dishonors them. It also conveniently ignores how much white-collar crime there is. The reality is that wealth causes crime just as supposedly poverty does. This is the secular worldview. Every sin is caused by some sort of suffering. So those who suffer lose moral agency. They don't, they don't have responsibility for their sin. So this is a very dismissive and demeaning view of those who have, su- who have suffered. If you suffer, you lose moral agency and you're not responsible for your actions thereafter. It's not only demeaning, but it's simply not true. The assumption that experiencing trials justifies indulging temptations is a massive error, but that error is not just a societal problem, it is a personal one, because this deception often enters our own thinking in regard to our own lives. 
We all try to excuse our sin as some sort of a normal or natural response to our suffering. We all say things like, sweetheart, if you knew how hard my day was, you'd understand why I was so snippy with you at dinner. If you knew how hard my childhood was, you'd understand why I can't be expected to this or that or the other thing. We all try to excuse our sin as a normal response to suffering. But brothers and sisters, I want to ask you to consider something this morning. I want you to consider in your life ways in which this erroneous worldview has crept in. What sin are you justifying on the basis of suffering which you've experienced in the past or are experiencing right now? And, uh, you know, usually pastors kind of leave the hard meddling towards the end of their sermons. I'm going to start with this. Don't tune me out, but uh, bear with me here. Let me meddle a little bit. Are you excusing gluttony? Are you excusing gluttonous consumption of so-called comfort foods whenever you're stressed or sad? Well, my day was so stressful, that's why I'm indulging in gluttony. Or I'm sad, that's why I'm indulging in gluttony. Are you excusing sexual sins because it provides a brief escape from the pain of your problems? Are you excusing bitterness because you've been mistreated by others? As we all know from personal experience, from observing others, and from Scripture, human beings are expert blame shifters. We blame our sin on our parents, on our past, or our problems, but never on ourselves. In fact, we've developed a multi-billion dollar industry where we pay other people to tell us that our problems are our parents' fault. We blame our sin on our parents, our past, or our problems but we never blame ourselves. That's how Scripture opens, isn't it? Adam, when he sins, does what? Blames God. The woman you placed here gave me the fruit. Eve blames Satan. The serpent deceived me. See, it's not our fault, right? Someone else's fault. It's God's fault, Satan's fault, someone else's fault, but definitely not ours definitely not mine. We think our trials excuse our temptations, but there is never an excuse for sin, never. If you hear nothing else, hear that. There is never a valid excuse for sin. No one ever in any circumstance has a valid excuse for sin. That's one of the lessons we're going to learn from James in verses 12 through 18. Now, last week we finished our study of the first passage, which is verses 2 through 11, and then today will be the first of two messages on the second passage, verses 12 through 18. Verses 2 through 11 taught us how to endure trials, and now verses 12 through 18 will teach us how to endure temptations. So, verses 2 through 11 focus on trials, and now verses 12 through 18 will focus on temptations. Let's read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. Now, as we study these really powerful and practical verses, we're going to learn four lessons about trials and temptations. Four lessons about trials and temptation. We're going to cover two this week, and we'll cover the next two next week. The first lesson the Lord is going to teach us through the pen of James is in verse 12, and that is the triumph of a godly response to trials and temptations. The triumph of a godly response to trials and temptations. Look at verse 12. It says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved or passed the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the triumph of a godly response to trials and temptations. Now, as we look at verse 12, I want to begin by helping you see its connections to what precedes it and follows it, right? We always want to interpret Scripture in its context, and I want you to see how verse 12 functions in the greater context. Notice that verse 2 began with, consider it all joy, my brothers. Now, verse 12 begins with the word blessing. So, you have joy in verse 2, and now blessing in verse 12. So this is marking a new section that is parallel to the one which preceded it. There are a lot of connections between the preceding context and verse 12, and then also between verse 12 and what follows it. For example, the word endurance, hupomene, occurs in verse 3 and in verse 4, and also here in verse 12. The word test, Dokomos occurs in verse 3 and in verse 12. And most importantly, the key word in this entire section, pirasmas, translated either as trial or temptation, depending on the context, appears in verse 2, in verse 12, and in verse 13. And this shows that verse 12 is connected both to what preceded it and what follows it. In fact, there are so many connections to both what preceded verse 12 and what follows it that Douglas Moo, I think, rightly calls verse 12 the hinge between the two passages, between the two sections. It functions, verse 12 functions as both a conclusion to what James has just talked about in verses 2 through 11 and also as an introduction to what James is going to talk about in verse 13. Therefore, verse 12 can be considered the central thought or even the main idea of the whole section, which spans from 
verse 2 all the way through verse 18. It is the hinge between the two parts of that section. And verse 12 begins with the word blessed. Now, this word should be familiar to you because it's the same one that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's interesting because when James says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, there's no direct citation of Jesus that we can trace this to. He's not quoting the Lord directly. But as you hear James speak, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, the, the voice of Christ seems to be ringing in the background. Its, its affinity to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount is very strong. Even when James is not quoting Jesus directly, the teaching and even the vocabulary of his older brother is always in the background molding and shaping the thoughts and the words of James. In other words, James sounds like Jesus even when he's not quoting him directly. I want to pause there and note, wouldn't that be great if that's what people thought about us and how we talk? You know, know, when Brett talks, I just, it, 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 it sounds, it kind of rings a lot like Jesus. Or when Sally or when Jim talks, it sounds like Jesus. Would people say that about you in your speech? Well, I think often of what my children hear from me, and very often I don't think they hear the tone and tenor and the words of the Lord in my speech, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we strove to be like James, where as we're expressing our own thoughts, everyone who hears it starts flipping back into the gospel saying, is he citing Jesus directly or just alluding to something Jesus said? I love that about James. His speech is endued and filled with the thoughts and words of Christ. Well, when we look at this word blessed, we're reminded of what it means. It means to have divinely given joy, which comes from being in right standing with God. D. Edmund Hebert calls it, quote, an inner quality of life, a joy and happiness which is not dependent upon favorable external circumstances. This is a status or a state of heart which is impervious to external hardships. Here in verse 12, James says that the person who perseveres under trial is a blessed person. In other words, there is a deep joy which we experience when our faith is tested and proven to be genuine. The more we are tested and the more we pass the test, the more blessed we are. The word persevere there in verse 12 blesses the man who perseveres under trial. That word is in the present tense. It's talking about a continual perseverance, a regular perseverance. See, the trials come at us regularly, and so the perseverance has to also be a regular occurrence in our life. This present tense use of the word persevere describes someone who keeps standing no matter what life throws at him. No matter how much pressure the world and the flesh and the devil put on him, he keeps standing. He keeps demonstrating that hupomene, the ability to stand up or bear up under it. He just keeps on standing no matter what the enemy throws at him. James says, blessed is that man who 
perseveres, regularly perseveres under those regular trials. He says, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. What the New American Standard translates as be approved, other translations translate as passing the test. It has the idea of of encountering something that tests your faith and emerging from it having been shown that your faith is genuine. It's the term here, dokomos. It was a word they used back in those days to describe the testing of coins and metal to see if they were real or not. You know, someone comes and says, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you, you know, five bronze coins for your cow. Well, you want to make sure that these little pieces of metal are actually bronze because if they're a counterfeit, you gave away a cow and all you have is rocks. So what would you do? Well, you would, you would subject those coins to dokomos, to an examination, a test. It's like when the jeweler is you know, looking at the diamond to grade it. Counterfeits would not pass the test but the genuine article would. That's what trials do to our faith. They show whether or not it's genuine. Hebert comments, quote, to be rewarded, the believer must not only be tested, but also be attested. He must not only be tested, but also be attested as having shown himself to be genuine. The testing has effectively demonstrated his character as firm and reliable. Each new test the believer successfully endures adds fresh proof of fidelity to God. Our faith is tested, and the result should be that we are found to be genuine. We, our faith is attested as true. So here in verse 12, James repeats really the core concept that he introduced back in verse 2 and following, that when we overcome trials we gain spiritual confidence in the genuineness of our faith and therefore the certainty of our salvation. Every time in your life where you encounter a test, something hard, something that challenges your faith, that tests your faith, and you emerge through that with your faith intact, without veering into apostasy, without, without veering into heresy, without veering off of the narrow path, you gain confidence in the genuineness of your own faith. Verse 5 says that that produces joy and, or verse 2, I'm sorry, says that that produces joy and verse 12 says that it produces blessing. There is both joy and blessing which comes in successfully passing through a trial which tests your faith, which refines your character, and which proves that the Holy Spirit is at work within you. See, the Scripture says that the truly born-again believer is protected by the power of God. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He seals you unto eternity. And so when you encounter these hard tests where your faith is so severely tested and your faith emerges intact, you know that that was the power of God and therefore the work of the Holy Spirit. And that means that you will have joy and blessing because you have such great confidence that you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You endure the test, you pass it because you love Christ and therefore you will receive the crown of life. That terminology for crown here refers 
to the victor's crown that athletes would receive. Uh, for example, at the ancient Olympic Games, they would receive a crown. So the picture here is that every time we overcome another hurdle, every time we make it around another hard lap without quitting, every time we face the foe and remain standing, we receive the joy and blessing of knowing that the victor's crown awaits us. You know, you, are, you're in a, you don't know how many laps your race is, right? We don't know the number of our days. But every time you pass one more lap, one more hard test, every time you clear one more hurdle, your confidence grows because you know that the award stand is coming. And the crown which we will receive is not the fading wreath of leaves the ancient Olympians received or what are those like, like bears or something that the athletes are getting now? I can never figure it out, but looks like a stuffed animal they're holding. I, I haven't watched it very closely. But. but what they receive is temporary. What we will receive is eternal and unfading. The increasing joy and blessing of assurance and anticipation of eternal life is the reward we receive each time we overcome another trial. There is triumph in a godly response. There's triumph in a godly response to trials. Savor the triumphs. Look back on your life. If your faith is intact right now, look back on the trials and realize that each one of them was a dokamos. It was, it was the fire which has proved your faith to be genuine. And because your faith has been tested and you have passed the test, it's been shown to be genuine, let your heart be filled with joy and the blessing of knowing that God is going to keep his promise to give the crown of eternal life to all who love him. And so look forward to the award stand and let that give you encouragement to run another lap. The triumph of a godly response to trials and temptations. That's verse 12. Now we get to the part we don't like to think about, which is the tragedy of an ungodly response. The triumph of a godly response and the tragedy of an ungodly response to trials and temptations. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. There's a tragedy in an ungodly response to trials and temptations. When I was growing up, ABC, before big games would, they had this program called The Wide World of Sports, and they had this little montage that they called The Thrill of Victory and the agony of defeat. Anyone remember that? You know, it'd show like, you know, some ski jumper, you know, landing the, you know, the, the, you know, just flying through the air and landing it perfectly and his arms go up the thrill of victory. And then it would cut to a different guy who was like crashing and tumbling down the hill and, and say the agony of defeat. Well, that's what James is giving us here in verse 12, the thrill of victory and 
in verses 13 through 16, the agony of defeat. I would have actually entitled this message that if I had thought of it earlier. But you know, the bulletin, you know, has to be ready on Thursday and good ideas sometimes never come and sometimes come later than Thursday. It's the thrill of victory, but the agony of defeat. As I've mentioned several times throughout this, our studies in James, in Greek, the word for trial and temptation is the same word in Greek, pirasmos. We don't have an equivalent word to this. This word has a range of meaning that no one English word exactly matches, and that's why the translators have to translate either by trial or temptation depending upon the context. But in Greek, it's just one term, perasmus. It's the same word in verses 2 all the way down through verse 18. MacArthur comments, the same word is used for both the idea of trial and temptation because the primary difference is not in the perasmus itself, but in a person's response to it. It's our response which determines whether something hard is a trial or a temptation. In this fallen world, we encounter all kinds of things which test our faith. We will encounter the test, but whether the test becomes for you a trial or a temptation depends on how you respond to it. It is the internal response which determines whether perasmus is a trial or a temptation. You, by your response, will determine whether something is a trial which refines your character and then brings joy and blessing, or a temptation which corrupts your character and brings grief and tragedy. This depends on how we respond. So my exhortation to you is don't waste the hard things in life. Don't waste the hard things in life. God desires them to be a blessing for you, to refine your character, to bring you to spiritual maturity, and to give you these great rewards of endurance, but the enemy of our souls intends them for evil, to bring you down. How will you respond to the test? Anything that tests your faith can be either a trial to you or a temptation to you, and it all depends on your reaction. If you passed the test, you overcame a trial. If you failed the test, you succumbed to a temptation. In verses 2 through 12, James used this same word, perasmus, in its noun form. He's just describing the reality of the hard tests which come our way in life, the trials. But here, now in verses 13 through 15, he switches to a verbal form of that word, perasmai to describe temptations. This is why in your English versions, even though it's the same word throughout, verses 2 through 18, you see in English the switch from trial to now in verse 13, temptation. That's signaled by the switch from the noun to the verb. In verses 2 through 12, James uses the noun form of perasmus to describe external realities, external trials. Now in verse 13, he switches to the participle perasmai to describe the internal action of temptation. See, it's not when hard things happen to you, but when bad things happen in you that a 
test becomes a temptation. James switches from the noun describing our external circumstances to the verb describing our internal reaction to it. That's why, rightly, the English translators switch to the word temptation to translate this important word in verse 13. Now, when James begins describing the internal action, not the external reality, the noun, but the internal action, the verb of temptation, he is quick to clarify that these internal temptations do not come from God in any way, shape, or form, not directly and not indirectly. God allows the noun. He never does the verb. He allows the external trial, and verses 2 and following taught us that He wants to use those tests to refine our character, to accomplish His eternal purposes, but He never is the cause of the internal temptation. So how do trials become temptations? How does the external hardship become an internal temptation towards sin? Well, that's what James is explaining to us in verses 13 through 15. And he begins by acknowledging the reality. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. It's when you're tempted. This is a reality for us. We all face temptation. In fact, he's going to say in verse 14, each one is tempted when he's carried away. This is a, this is a reality for all of humanity, and it's an individual reality for each of us. James acknowledges that reality. We face temptation. Well, why? Well, first, Satan is a tempter, Scripture teaches. He will try to entice us with various evils. Secondly, the world is a fallen world, so it will dangle evil in front of us like bait on a fish hook. You know, you can't escape the world. You you could go to a monastery and lock yourself away. The world's temptations will find you there. So we must be in the world, but not of the world. There's another source of temptation, and that is our fallen bodies. We are not in our glorified body. You know, when you got saved, you were made a new creation in Christ. Your soul was redeemed and transformed. The Holy Spirit indwelled you, but your body did not undergo a physical transformation. It will, but it has not yet. And so, the flesh causes us to experience various physical and emotional temptations. So because of the world, the realities of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we will experience temptation. So how do we pass that test? To successfully pass those tests that we will encounter in a fallen world, we need to understand how trials become temptations and how to stop that. Look at verses 14 again and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, in any warfare, the key to victory is knowing your enemy. You have to know your enemy to know how to defeat him. So how does our enemy of sin work? How does it work in us? What's the mechanism? How does it happen inside us? I think these verses are really helpful in the fight of faith because it reveals that. James here gives us four stages of temptation. And so knowing how temptation works will help us to know how to fight it. And I don't think um, there's any kind of um, 
you know, outline of these four stages that's better uh, than the one uh, that John MacArthur has given. And so I'm going to kind of borrow his outline here and then put my own thoughts into each of the stages. But he has labeled these four stages desire, deception, design, and disobedience. So four stages of temptation. Desire, deception, design, and disobedience. So let's take a look at that process. One which is all too familiar, but also one which we are very blind to at times. Temptation is always easiest to fight early in the process, not later. Temptation is easily defeated at the beginning and almost impossible to defeat towards the end. So we have to fight it at the first stage, and that first stage is desire, the stage of desire. The downward spiral into sin begins when an evil desire is allowed to take root in our hearts. As Spurgeon famously said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you sure can stop them from building a nest in your hair. But what happens is, you know, we allow the bird to land and place a twig there and then land again and place another twig there. Evil thoughts or evil desires, whatever it may be. And pretty soon there's a whole nest there and then the birds camp in there and live in there and lay in eggs there and pretty soon we have a whole nest full of birds in our head. You have to stop it at the level of desire before it takes root in your heart. I say this many times, I'll say it again. What we want is what we will do. And whatever you do shows what you really want. No one can avoid that connection. What you want is what you will do eventually in some way. So the key to victory is to want what is good and right, to want what God wants, not what the world, the flesh, and the devil want. That's what James says. He says the process of temptation begins when a person is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Epithumia, this is the word which refers not just to ungodly sexual desires, but to any desire for something that is evil. Evil desires are like a net which drags and carries away the fish. It's like a baited hook that entices him. An evil desire in the heart will eventually get you hooked in your life. Now, fishermen know this. I've mentioned this before, but it's impossible to catch a fish that's not hungry. He doesn't have any desire for the bait you're dangling in front of him. So the key to successfully resisting temptation is to root out ungodly desires and to replace them with godly ones. Love for God should cause you to desire to obey Him, and your desire to obey Him must be stronger than your desire to sin. Whether or not you give in to temptation or not depends on whether your love for God or your love for whatever it is is stronger. It's that simple. And whatever you choose shows what you loved more. So, sin at its root is idolatry. It's loving something or someone more than you love God. It's assigning in your heart a higher value to sin than to the Savior. It all starts with desire. You have to replace 
any love for sin with a greater love for God. You have to dig out the love for sin and put it to death and then replace it with a love for the Savior which far outweighs all other loves. Well, if you fail in that first stage and you love and desire something evil more than God, the second stage of temptation begins, and that's deception. What's interesting is verses 13 through 16 begin and end with a warning against deception. Verse 13 says, hey, when you're tempted, don't be deceived and say, God is tempting me. He says, that's not the case. That's not true. And then in verse 16, he says, he says explicitly, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. This is the second stage of a fall into sin is deception, self-deception. You see, once an evil desire has taken root in our hearts, it begins to deceive us. It has to convince us that it's not an evil desire, it's a good desire or a normal desire or a natural desire or an unavoidable desire. It has to deceive us. Sin tricks us into thinking that it is all bait and no hook. It tricks us into thinking that an evil desire is actually a normal desire or even a good one. It tricks us into thinking that evil is good and wrong is right. That lust is love or that perversion is normal. It tricks us into thinking that our evil desires actually come from God, not the world, the flesh, and the devil. What, what is the world saying about their sin? They're saying, I was born this way. And when they say, I was born this way, they, they're not talking about the depravity of man, man falling into sin and having a depraved nature. Oh no, that's not what they mean by I was born this way. They're saying, I was born this way and God made me this way and it's good. James is saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. We'll talk more about that next week. But sin deceives us. And we have to fight this self-deception. If temptation has progressed to the second stage, you must fight the devil's lies with God's truth. And here you come to the choice, the unavoidable choice. Will you believe the world, the flesh, and the devil, or will you believe the word of God? Choose this day whom you will serve. If the world's ideologies contradicts what the Bible says, who will you believe? If your flesh wants something that God forbids, who will you believe? If the devil says it's okay, but God's word says it's wrong, who will you believe? We must fight deception. We must fight self-deception. Well, how do you fight self-deception? By studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's word. Your word is truth, Jesus says. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So how do you fight lies? You fight it with truth. Psalm 119, 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. See, if I don't hide God's word in my heart, something else will fill my heart. The devil's lies, the world's deceptions and ideologies, or the self-deceptions which come from my own flesh. We must fight deception by studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's holy word. Now, what happens if you don't? If you blow right through the second stage, you'll rapidly spiral down to the third stage of temptation, which is design. Designing a strategy to commit evil. James says in verse 15 that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
You see, when we harbor evil desires and are deceived by the bait of sin, we soon find ourselves circling around that juicy bait. We're like a fish who's getting closer and closer and then starting to nibble. And once he nibbles a little bit, he starts to think, how can I get the rest of this without getting caught? We move from desire and deception to design. This is willful evil. Now, there's still self-deception in it. We tell ourselves, we won't actually bite. We'll just nibble around the edges. But the reality is that temptation has moved to a willful stage, the stage of designing a strategy. If we are really honest with ourselves, at this point, we're trying to figure out how to get the worm without getting caught. So we begin strategizing, maybe secretly, quietly, and of course, with a huge dose of self-deception, but we are subtly trying to design a strategy by which we can eat the worm and not get caught. How can I hide my sin? How can I excuse my sin? How can I justify my sin? How can I get the worm and not get caught? Design. By the way, sometimes people move through these stages very closely. Sometimes it's a slow drift into sin. You know, someone just kind of harbors an evil desire for years just never really uproots it, just kind of lets it, you know, kind of keeps it under check, but it's there. But at some point, he's harbored it long enough where it moves then to deception. He starts to tell himself that it's not really that bad. It's okay. It's pretty normal. Lots of people do this. And he moves from desire to deception, and at some point, he drifts into design. How can I get away with this? How can I do this without anyone knowing? How can I do this and limit the consequences? Sometimes we drift through the stages over years, even decades. Other times we move through these stages so fast that we're not even conscious of the movement between them. It happens in milliseconds. But inevitably, whether slow or fast, we come to the fourth stage, which is disobedience. Like a fish that's been slowly circling the bait, getting closer and closer each time and maybe nibbling a little bit, at some point, instinct takes over and we gulp. We chomp. I think sometimes fish even surprise themselves with the speed and ferocity with which they swallow the hook. After all, he told himself he was only going to nibble. And all of a sudden, the hook is down his throat before he even realizes it. I, in first service, as I was sharing that, I realized that I'm speculating about the thoughts of a fish, which is kind of ironic, but, but I actually think it's, it's actually poignant. You see, the fish doesn't think. That's the issue. He circles the bait, and at some point, he gulps without thinking, without thinking about the consequences. And we're a lot like that, aren't we? And he bites, and of course, there is at first the palatable pleasure of the worm, but soon that is followed by the piercing pain of the hook. Scripture calls, talks about the passing pleasures of sin. Sin brings short-term pleasure and long-term pain. Verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, right? When 
when you do what you know you should not, it brings forth death. Here's where what James tells us becomes so helpful and practical. If you're trying to fight sin at stage four, you've already lost. You're, you're like the fish who's been nibbling and all of a sudden you gulp and you're like, I can't believe I did that. Well, why can't you believe you did that? I mean, you looked at it and circled around it and got closer and closer and tried to figure out how to get the worm without getting caught and now you're shocked that you're caught. You tried to fight at stage four at disobedience rather than at the level of desire. Well, what's the secret? It's to fight it at level one. The best way to not get caught by sin is to not be a hungry fish, right? Don't desire what the world, the flesh, and the devil dangle in front of you. You need a greater desire, a desire for God. That's what James is telling us when he warns us in verse 16 against deception. Don't be deceived. And then he reminds us in verses 17 and 18 of the goodness of God. He says, look, don't be deceived, brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. There's something so much better than these things. As C.S. Lewis said, sometimes we're like, we're like someone who's, who's going after mud pies in a slum when God has prepared us to feast in heaven. You need to overcome your temptation for the mud pie by seeing the feast, the feast that is God's glory, His majesty, His goodness, seeing who He is. James is saying God is so much better than anything sin is offering you. Notice the contrast between verses 13 through 16 and verses 17 through 18. In verses 13 through 16, it's sin and death. And then he says, look up, look up to above, to the Father of lights who gives good and perfect things. Replace the desire for evil with a greater desire for God. Desire Him. Desire Him more than you desire anything else. Or as the psalmist put it, taste and see that the Lord is good. Turn away from the hook and taste and see that the Lord is is good. Fight evil by replacing your love for sin with a greater love for the Savior. That is how you can experience the triumph of passing the test rather than the tragedy of failing it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they will experience the triumph of passing the test and not the tragedy of failing it. I pray that for myself. Each of us needs to heed and hear the words of James. Lord, take it deep into our hearts. Expose desires for sin. Uproot evil desires from us, O Lord, and replace it, Lord, with the most majestic desire, the desire for you. You who are most good, most holy, most desirable, most perfect in all your attributes, May we desire you and not commit the idolatry of desiring evil things above you. This we pray.